is The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about trips that transform. I'm Esme Benjamin, editor of Full-Time Travel, and every other Thursday, I'll be sitting down with entrepreneurs, writers, entertainers, and everyday adventurers to discuss a journey that shifted their mindset, ignited a new calling, expanded their heart, or ushered in a new chapter. My guest today, Rachel Signer, was an aspiring author living in Brooklyn, cobbling together a living by freelance writing and working various jobs in hospitality, when she was invited on a food and wine-themed press trip to Burgundy and Paris. It was a trip that would affirm her deep appreciation for the French language, culture, cuisine, and wine, specifically natural wine. Rachel spent the next few years following her heart, first to Paris, where she dreamed of opening a bar with her best friend, and then to Australia to pursue a relationship with a natural winemaker, a story she recounts in her book, You Had Me at Pet Nat, a natural wine-soaked memoir. As she tried to figure out which life path and which place to commit to, Rachel channeled her knowledge and her passion into launching a natural wine-themed publication, Pipette Magazine, and her own label of hand-produced natural wine, Persephone. In this episode, Rachel shares how that trip to France took her deeper into the world of wine and inspired her to move to Paris, the importance of listening to her gut and making inconvenient choices, and how a relationship with a city can be its own kind of love story. This episode is sponsored by Los Cabos, the Mexican destination where you can have it all and more. Well, I just recently finished your memoir on a trip to Miami. It was great. So I feel like I have a bit of an idea of what your life looks like. I'm sure I don't <laughs> I don't know the half of it, but I can picture it. Yeah, awesome. I'm glad to hear that. So I guess let's jump in with yeah, sure. the question I like to ask everybody to kick things off, which is where did your love of travel originate? It definitely originated from my, my mother. I grew up with a closet full of saris of Indian dresses that she had collected. My mother had studied journalism and then was hoping to go abroad to be a reporter. And then for family reasons, she stayed a few years longer. And then she'd finally just had enough. I think being a, a, being a woman in a, in a newsroom at the time, she felt her opportunities were really limited. And so she bought a ticket and just started traveling around the world. And then she wound up living in India for four years. And I grew up with these stories and seeing like um, things that she had brought back from India and from also Japan. And I, I just had this wanderlust kind of built into me from a young age. And she also encouraged me to have like a very international group of friends. So, you know, I knew where Kenya was from a young age. I knew where France was. And then I also loved languages. And at the age of 12, I signed up for French and I was a very talkative, very loud child. And the teacher did not like this, Madame Fox. She was very correct and very prim and she glared at me. And finally, I, I just felt, I felt her hatred so intensely that I switched to Spanish and Aww. then I spent it was really bad. <laughs> I, I just couldn't, I would just blurt out in class. I was like a bit overly extroverted. So I learned Spanish and I, I traveled in my university years in Latin America and later also in Spain. But then later I went back to French, as you know. Yes, we'll get onto that in a little while. But I guess the next question I should ask you 
is where did your love of natural wine originate? Because when you first developed a taste for it, I feel like it wasn't really in the mainstream. So I'm intrigued to know, you know, how you came across it and how it became such a passion for you. Yeah. I think that I was already starting to become really interested in local food and in like heirloom vegetable varieties and organic produce. You know, I, I had found that that had become kind of my political language at the time. Like, I can't stop these wars. I can't change the way people are treated by government, but I can choose how I purchase food. And I was just starting to do that. And I think I was noticing how things tasted differently when they were grown in a different way. And I, I think it must have just primed my palate a little bit. I'd never heard of natural wine, organic wine. I didn't really think of viticulture as a form of agriculture at all. I didn't think of wine as something made like artisanally. Never occurred to me, to be honest. And then one day I was just working at this restaurant in Brooklyn and they had natural wine. And I did not have any ambitions in the hospitality world or in wine. I was studying fiction writing and I had this manuscript I was working on and I just needed some cash flow. Um, I grew up kind of working in restaurants, but nothing fancy, really nothing kind of trendy. So yeah, there I was. And I just remember tasting it and feeling, wow, this is different because it's alive and because it makes me feel really energetic because wine had always made me a bit sleepy, sort of like a big glass of Chilean Merlot or Carmenere and out. Like that's, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it was a different experience. For anybody who isn't familiar, like what exactly is natural wine and how is it made? What makes it special? Yeah. So natural wine is not a certification, but it's a movement of small wine growers and winemakers, individuals or families around the world can be anywhere and it can be made from any kinds of grapes, but the, the focus is on how it's made. So the grapes are all farmed organically. So no pesticides, herbicides, or fungicides. And then basically you take the grapes and you do as little as possible. So you don't add any colorant. You don't add artificial yeast to start fermentation. You don't add any, or at least not too much, um, sulfites, which would basically, they're, they're considered antibacterial. Some people call them preservatives. Um, but natural winemakers really don't very add very much sulfite. And in the end, you have something made. It's also not filtered. So you have this like very raw, unadulterated, fermented grape juice. I would also add that it's made with kind of a spirit of fun. It's generally a bit lower in alcohol. People like to pick early. The idea is that wine is part of everyday life. It's not meant to be necessarily a luxury or something too special. Like it's meant to be something enjoyed every day. And you said you started your natural wine education while you were working in hospitality. But I know that, as you said, you were also working on this novel and you were doing some freelance writing on the side. Did you consciously decide that wine was going to be your beat or did that happen organically? Yes, I did decide that. I'm someone that learns by doing, and it never interested me to really take wine certificate courses. There's so many out there, you know, 
I was living in New York, I could have easily signed up for so many things. But I, I thought I could learn enough by working and by doing journalism. I mean, it, when you're a journalist, if you pick any beat, if it really interests you, you'll learn about it pretty quickly. And so that's what I did. I read books. I worked in a wine shop after that job in a restaurant. So I was going to trade tastings and I was tasting things at work and I was asking lots and lots of questions. And then I started doing very like introductory articles about wine. Some of them were a bit whimsical. The first thing I did was I wrote about like a, a coloring book for adults that this winemaker, Andre Mack, had made with some chef friends. It was just like a cute thing in the food world. Over time, I just kept learning more and more and becoming slowly more knowledgeable. Yeah, that's, that is one of the best things about being a journalist is you can basically speak to any expert you want and just get like kind of a free education if you want to do it that way. But obviously you did do a good job of kind of carving out that niche for yourself because around this time an editor that you were working with at a publication offered you a food and wine themed trip to France. That must have felt like a big step in the direction of your dreams. Oh, this was so amazing. This was mind blowing. I had been to France for one very, very short trip as a student. And I'd held on to this desire to return. Um, I, I had studied French. I'd studied French history like in graduate school. And I had not been back in 10 years. And then, yeah, exactly what you said. An editor basically passed on a press trip. And it was completely life-changing. Um, I mean, this was the trip that changed me. And uh, the way I went about it is also kind of funny. And I think in, in a way, my naivete about how press trips work really helped me. It actually worked in my favor. So typically when you're a journalist, if someone offers you a press trip, you're supposed to be kind of grateful and kind of go with what they're offering. And I think I didn't know that. And so the editor was like, okay, I'll connect you to these people in France and they'll sort out your trip for you. And I was like, okay, so it was not just going to France, it was going to Burgundy. And Burgundy is, I mean, it's one of France's most famous wine regions. It's one of the most famous wine regions in the world. And I was like amazed at the concept of going there. And we had a Burgundy expert in kind of like um, another store that we had a sort of a relationship with. And I just called this guy and I was like, I'm going to Burgundy. Oh my God, tell me, what do I do? And he, he got on the phone right away with, she recently passed away, Becky Wasserman, a very legendary woman who was like an agent between Burgundy growers and the United States. And so she helped their wines get exported to the United States. And she had an amazing team of people working there. Um, she still does in, in her absence. I didn't get to meet her, but I, so I basically like went around this French agency's kind of backs and organized this trip. I really didn't think I was doing anything bad. They had shown me an itinerary and it was like, first you will ride a bicycle and then you will dine and then you will visit a museum and then you will dine. And I was like, this looks so boring. <laughs> I cannot, where is the wine? Where's the wine? Like I wanted to go visit growers. 
And so they caught wind of kind of how I was trying to change the itinerary and they like threatened to cancel the whole trip. And I sort of calmed down. But at that point, I had already organized to go along with Becky Wasserman's team and visit all these growers. So I re recount some of this in my book. I don't know how much of it you want me to go into here. Well, I know you did a lot on this trip. You met many people in the industry. You tasted a lot of wine and a lot of food. But how do you think this particular trip deepened your appreciation for French culture as a whole? It made me understand as an American, well, what, what tradition is and how far back it goes. I mean, I, I still remember one grower, Caroline Gagnard, and her family has this famous, small, very highly regarded estate. Jean-Noël Gagnard. And I asked her, how far back does your family go? And we were standing in her cellar and surrounded by moldy wine bottles with like these, you know, those like Roman numerals, like very old school labels. And they're all just covered in, in like cobwebs and mold. I'm like, um, how far back does your family go? And she just waved her hand behind her shoulder. <laughs> oh. So far, it's far. And I'm like, oh, okay, wow. You know, like, I mean, I, I, I know when my great grandparents immigrated from Europe to the States and that's it. In, in Europe, there's, I think, a much deeper sense of tradition. And I think a lot of the way that people make wine with so much attention and care has to do with this is their grandparents' land and their great grandparents' land. Um, of course, you have the French Revolution kind of changing things up in their history. And people in Burgundy, you know, they talk about that in whispers a little bit because it affected that region a lot. But I think that sense of tradition really made me see, you know, people go to France and they don't understand why things are the way they are. And it's because things have been done that way for a long time. So the history was really amazing. And I, I just think seeing winemakers as people was really amazing. So someone greeted us at a, an estate that is one of the most expensive in Burgundy. And it was the winemaker greeting us. And first I made a huge mistake, which was that I went like this to kiss him really enthusiastically. Yeah, because French was... do that, right? They love it. <laughs> yeah, supposedly. Uh, <laughs> someone had told me, kiss everyone. I think I probably would have kissed like, you know, the bus driver if I had the chance but actually you shake hands <laughs> in business oh. situations you would definitely like offer a handshake first unless they go for it that was very instructive the look on his face was like who the hell is this American girl what is she doing <laughs> but um you know it I learned that he had been like a pilot in the in the military and then he had given up that career to cut back and, and retake up the, the vineyard. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like people have lives outside of the winery also, and then they have to decide. And, and more and more, there's, there's people that I, that I have met in wine and they used to work in banking or they used to work in photography, fashion. And, and you kind of start to see, you, you learn to ask that question, like, have you always done this? Even if the estate has been there for hundreds of years, people still have had lives. And I think it really affects how they make their wine. 
And then I don't even know how to describe the effect the food had on me. It was so decadent. Like I was eating foie gras and pigeon and like, oh my God, just beautiful. I learned that I think the, the French take meals really seriously. And that just this like deep appreciation of food is so ingrained in the culture, especially in a wine region. And meals are slow. And I thought that was just beautiful. I loved that. Are the wineries there mostly family businesses? Yes, I would say so. There are conglomerates and there are, um, I think the most famous example is like LVMH owns, you know, a few champagne houses, they own one in Bordeaux, they own some things in New Zealand and South America. But I was visiting family growers and that is the world of fine wine and also the world of natural wine. So fine wine and natural wine definitely have that in common. There's no corporate ladder, there's no CEO, and then the guy who's in charge of sales and then the winemaker. Generally, the winemaker does most of everything. And then there would be an assistant winemaker and helping hands during vintage and obviously the winemaker's partner, whether that whether the winemaker is a woman or a man, the partner is involved in the family business. So it's definitely family owned for the, for the biggest part, I think. That's interesting. I feel like wine culture in general can be seen as a bit inaccessible. And I imagine that's especially the case in France, where there's this long history and tradition and the French just generally have a bit of a reputation for maybe being standoffish or whatever. But what was your experience of being there and learning from the winemakers? Did you start to feel pulled to this idea of venturing deeper into that world? I learned, and this was very applicable in Burgundy because they have a whole system of classification for their vineyards. But even without that system, what I learned that if you stand in a winemaker's cellar, they know which wine they think is the most interesting and which wine is not going very well or which one is less interesting. Because, and that might have to do with the vineyards. It might have to do with how it was picked or when it was picked or something else, the, the weather, um, but that is all in their head. And so, you know, there's the harvest and then the wine kind of gets quote unquote made, it gets like fermented, but then they have to figure out what to do with it and how to make it into its best self. So I think the most interesting thing, if you love wine is to visit a winemaker's cellar where all the wine is fermenting and then see if you can get them, if they're comfortable talking about specifically that exact barrel, like what do they see in it and um, how are they going to decide what to do with it? And I mean, in, in natural wine and in just the new world in general, people can do anything that they want to. But in Europe, they're much more bound to tradition because they have this whole system of classification and they, they need to like make the wine according to how it's classified. So it's very complicated and hard for winemakers to like manage all of these different kind of things that are fermenting and figure out how to make it as best they can. I think being, being in a cellar was a really amazing experience for me and very educational. And on this self-created itinerary, <laughs> I know you also went to Paris. And although Burgundy was an incredible experience, it was Paris that you really fell in love with on this trip. I think Paris has appeared more than any other destination 
on this podcast. <laughs> People really love Paris. What do you think it is about Paris that's so captivating? I really love Paris. <laughs> <laughs> Paris is so amazing. And I think it it is also what people might like about it. It's sort of a hard egg to crack. Parisians are, are like famously tough. And the city is not like some destinations where they really cater to tourists and they'll all speak English to you and hold your hand. It's not really like that. But once I think you start to crack that, you can just enjoy it so much. And there's so many things that happen in Paris sometimes in the natural wine bars. They'll start opening bottles and they'll just lock the door and everyone just stays until 3 a.m. and smoking cigarettes inside and the the workers mingling with kind of um, guests. And it's like that sort of thing is so amazing. And you stumble out of there at 2 a.m. like, wow, what, what was I drinking? And that was amazing. And I had so many conversations and people were dancing on the tables and and like, there's there's a really good party atmosphere in Paris, but it's really centered around food and wine, great food and great wine. And um, I mean, it's it's just such a beautiful city. It has an incredible fashion culture. It has incredible art museums. And you're like walking around like you're in a museum. You're walking around in these many, many centuries of history, just kind of layered into each other. It's got so much in terms of natural wine, like it has exploded in the past 10 years. And I've, I think I mentioned a few places in the book and in the magazine that I published, we did a guide to Paris in issue six, which lists like our favorite wine bars for natural wine, but they're also different also. So each natural wine bar has its own kind of personality and like its own way that you would approach it. Like there's La Bouvette and everybody goes there for aperitif. Aperitif is an important concept in French culture. They also just call it apéro, And it's like a little drink and maybe a snack that you would have at the start of the evening. And it's kind of nice because you can meet someone for apéro and you can take it from there. Like, oh, shall we also go have dinner or shall we do something else and just see what happens? I love Paris. I have my first Aperol spritz in Paris. <laughs> that very thing, Aperol. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like the idea of Paris as a city that plays hard to get. And that's why it's so enticing. That does make a lot of sense. But ultimately, you decided that you loved it so much, you wanted to leave New York. I think that's something that many, many people dream of doing but not many people actually do it what emboldened you to actually make the leap and and do it I was really like unhappy and I was I think I I think I was unhappy for a few years and I talk pretty openly about that in the book and I was in a very stagnant place in terms of my relationships and also my career. I don't think it looks like that from the outside. I think people from the outside probably saw me getting published in some exciting places, but I was getting paid almost nothing and also having to really chase that money. Life as a freelancer can suck. And um, I admire people that have figured it out, but I just needed change. And I, I knew that I had to do that for myself and that nobody 
I, when you're a freelancer, you're not, no one's going to offer you some jo job of your dreams. You sort of have to make your own kind of life as you go. So I didn't wait until I had enough money saved up. I didn't wait until I had a dream job offer. I didn't even have a place to live. I just packed up two suitcases and I went. And I think, you know, the book sort of explains why I did not ultimately end up in Paris. But I mean, I, I could have, like, I think I, could, I probably could have figured out a way to stay in the end if I had decided to do that. And I don't know if I can recommend my approach to everyone, <laughs> but some people also wait too long and they they're just waiting for that perfect moment, but maybe it's never going to come and maybe you just have to create it. Relax your mind, body and spirit in naturally open spaces or set off in search of fast paced adventures. In Los Cabos, you can have it all and more. Luxury villas just steps from the beach. Luxurious, all-inclusive resorts that look out over emerald green golf courses and endless views of the crystal clear Sea of Cortez are just the beginning. Find a special offer and get more out of your getaway at visitloscabos.travel forward slash featured dash offers. That's visitloscabos.travel forward slash featured dash offers. I think, like you said, sometimes it has to come from a period of feeling unsettled or unhappy because then you, it's like you have nothing to lose, right? It, things can only get better. And when we visit a place and we really love it, I think we also get the chance to imagine a different life for ourselves in that place. So the experience you had in Paris and the lock-ins and dancing on the tables and all of that stuff, I imagine you started to be like, oh, what would Paris Rachel be like? <laughs> She'd be happy. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's exactly it. And I, I think also when I speak other languages, a whole different part of myself emerges. But I do think that, yeah, you can be different people in other places. I have to say that being when I did move to Paris, I found that New York Rachel still existed in Paris. And so there is the reality of who you are and that's always going to be there. And so you, you eventually have to confront that, but there is, there, there, there is Paris Rachel and she's more carefree and um, loves speaking French. And yeah, so there, there's definitely that aspect of discovering new sides of ourselves when we are in a different place um and it's yeah it's fantastic but on the cusp of this move to Paris you went on another natural wine themed trip to Georgia and it just so happened that one of the attendees a natural winemaker from Australia would one day become your husband <laughs> yeah it was kind of an inconvenient time for you to begin a romance with somebody who lives on the other side of the planet. <laughs> so inconvenient. You, so inconvenient. How did you navigate exploring the potential of that relationship, regardless of the fact that it made like no logical sense, considering the path that you were on and what you had planned for yourself? I know it, it was so bizarre. And yeah, I mean, there's a whole chapter in my book also about the, the wine culture of Georgia, which was also so pivotal for me and I think also for my partner kind of discovering that amazing culture in Georgia but I just had I, I think it's just a feeling and it just the feeling wouldn't go away I wanted it to go away very much I was like this is so inconvenient yeah absolutely <laughs> I was like 
the feeling is still there. The feeling is still there. Okay, it's still there. Okay, it's still there. And at several points in the book, I kind of asked friends, like, what the hell do I do about this? What is going on? And they both were like, it honestly sounds a bit like you're falling in love. And I guess I just had to listen to that. So yes, sometimes love is inconvenient. Mm -hmm. An essential story arc in your memoir, You Had Me at Pet Nat, is this tension between these two great loves. The Aussie winemaker, wild man, as you refer to him in the book, and the city of Paris itself. Can you explain how a relationship with a city can feel mm -hmm. like a romance in its own way? Well, first there was my relationship with New York, and then there was Paris. And with, with New York, I felt like I was in this terrible kind of toxic relationship where I, I loved it and I wanted it to love me back and it just wouldn't. And I, I, you know, I kept trying and trying to make it work and not seeing the reality, which was that it was pretty lukewarm toward me. <laughs> I don't know. I, I had some great times in New York and some great friends, but that, that's, I, I never, I like for eight years, I was kind of looking for a level of comfort in New York that just never happened. And then with my relationship with Paris, I think in some ways it was maybe a bit fantastical, kind of seeing it in a, in a certain light that maybe wasn't completely reality. And I think I started to get more glimpse of reality as I was um, living there in that year that I spent there on and off. And I also, I think, came to realize that loving a city, it just isn't the same as loving a person. And it was, I, I've always been as someone very attached to place. And I've really let place kind of influence my level of happiness, maybe because I, I grew up with a lot of ideas of travel. And, and then when I did start to travel in my 20s and, and live in other countries, I found what we talked about earlier, how it made me like be a certain kind of person. And I loved that. But I think ultimately, I, I mean, I decided to live a life that was not really about place at all. And in some ways, very challenging, especially given the pandemic. And then I was basically estranged from my family, like raising a baby for two years on the other side of the world. And that that's a lesson in itself. And, you know, I, maybe in, in an ideal world, you wouldn't have to choose between place and other kinds of like comfort and, and stability and security and love. And they would all come together. And I wish that for everyone. But for me, it was all also about kind of letting go of this attachment to a city or attachment to a place. So I think over the course of the book, I started to realize that. I think when you're picking between two places, you're picking between two stories or two paths that you could see for yourself. And that could be really hard to choose between the two. You can be paralyzed with that indecision of trying to figure out, you know, which is the right path, which is the city for me. It's difficult. Yeah, absolutely. But it's good to change and it's good to try mm -hmm. new things while you can, definitely. And But the other thing to remember is that I think it takes like three years to settle into a new place. It's really hard. So for anyone who moves, I would definitely say try to give it at least two years. And you referenced earlier this, the idea of arriving in Paris, but bringing New York Rachel with you to Paris. <laughs> Obviously, it's very different. 
living somewhere than it is just going on an amazing vacation. What was that like for you, those first few weeks in Paris? And how did you adjust and find your feet there? I mean, it was like, I felt like I had stepped into a movie in some ways, um, but it was, it was so bizarre. I was just living in an Airbnb at first and, you know, I didn't have a kitchen, didn't have any furniture of my own, but I think that was good because it forced me to get out a lot and really interact with people. And I have vivid memories of all of those people, like the woman that ran the cafe around the corner from me. And she kept telling me about her life back home in Algeria. And like, yeah, I just had a lot of conversations with complete strangers because I was always out, out having coffee, out eating, like trying to just get used to the city. And I walked everywhere. And I remember I would walk and I was like, there were so many places I just wanted to know what they were. So many cafes and bookshops. And I would make mental notes to come back to them. There was also a really intense heat wave. So I stopped walking (laughs) and I basically just like drank cold beer in different random bars to kind of get through that heat wave and drank natural wine. And yeah, I mean, that time was beautiful. And I went running every day in this little like park and it was just by the Periferique, which is the freeway that goes around Paris. And just, I don't know, I think when you're in a new culture, those very simple, basic things are fascinating because you're just like seeing everything through an everyday lens. Um, I really loved it. And after this original stint in Paris, you were kind of bopping all over the globe. (laughs) and spending some time in the Australian countryside. And your partner encouraged you to begin making natural wine yourself. That Mm -hmm. seems like a huge deal. How was that process for you? Well, every every year since then, I say, I'm not a winemaker. I can't do this. I'm too busy. I have a kid. And then I'm now in my fifth vintage making, making wine still in this tiny little shed, still with no electricity, only my like hands and feet. And every time I think I'm going to stop, someone tells me how much they liked one of my wines. And I'm like, oh, well, I can't, you know, what will they drink to keep making wine? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I discovered a whole new side of myself. And it's really, it's really beautiful, I guess, how a relationship can, can do that and bring out a new aspect of yourself that you didn't know was there. And I have discovered a kind of, for me, making wine is really creative and kind of meditative. And um, it's such a small amount that I I can do it that way. And I have no intentions of scaling up because it's not my primary career. I'm still very much a writer. Um, And that's, yeah, like, for now, that sort of works. It does It does feel like a lot sometimes. I also, unfortunately, have so many hobbies that keep somehow proliferating. But yeah, I, um, I made wine first. Um, it was meant to be a barrel, but I just kind of kept, kept going. And I was using this basket press, um, the same technology I use now. And I, it, was, it was just so simple and beautiful. And I just loved it. And 
So my, my wine is called Persephone and I kind of explain in the book, but anyone that knows Greek mythology um, will recognize the story of Persephone. It's all about the emergence of spring and it's also about like a mother and a daughter. So it's about the seasons and agriculture. It's one of my favorite Greek myths. So yeah, here I am in my fifth vintage. Congratulations. It must feel so satisfying to make something from scratch with your own, as you said, hands and feet (laughs) and to like share it with the world. There's not many opportunities to do that in modern life. Oh, I love seeing people like back in New York or in other cities where I have friends in the States drinking a bottle of my wine. And I'm like, that's amazing. That's so cool. (laughs) I'm going to be looking out for it from now on. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Henry's in Bushwick always gets a little bit Good to know. Good to know. It's a great shop. We talked earlier a bit about, um, you know, choosing between two possible life paths in two different places. And your two options were essentially settling down with Wildman on a rustic farm and creating your own natural wine brand or opening a chic natural wine bar in Paris with your best friend. Both equally enticing. What was the final thing that helped you to decide what you wanted to do? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, I think in some corner of my mind, I'm like, oh, I'm still going back to Paris to start the wine <laughs> bar with GABA, right? I don't know. I mean, we definitely talk about all sorts of crazy things together. And I'm finally going to go back and see her after years next month. And I can't wait. But I think I really felt that making something, I had that first taste of it, right? So I came. I came to visit Wildman and then he suggested, you know, come back and try making a little wine. And I did not think of myself as a winemaker, but I had that taste of it, that first vintage, and I was completely transformed. I think once you start to become a producer, it's not as fulfilling to be a consumer and you, you really see how special it is to make things and to grow things, especially because we have planted many, many vineyards since then. And now we're tending them. And one day we'll make wine from them when they start to bear fruit. They did a little bit this year. And since then I've started growing, like I've learned how to grow vegetables and flowers. And it's difficult for me to imagine a life where I can't like walk out into the herb garden and sort of be overwhelmed by these fragrances and then bring that into the kitchen and use those fresh herbs. You just, I think you just get very quickly attached to making things. And, you know, some people I know like to live in a city and then make like in, in Portland, Oregon, you can have an urban winery and the vineyards are like, an hour away so you can have the best of both worlds but yeah I just I just had to choose and I thought that there was a new side of me that would probably emerge uh, from this lifestyle and also from being in love and starting a family but again I guess it was just a feeling like I don't think I was really thinking too hard about it it was definitely a feeling I know that in the beginning it's hard to imagine now that you're so you're so happy and satisfied where you are but you had trouble imagining yourself as like a country country gal (laughs) who is gonna live in this remote farm and I think it's interesting because it's hard for us to really 
give up what we've been used to, the lifestyle, the people, the habits we've acquired over time in a certain place and to, you know, embed ourselves in a new place and let that place change us. Mm-hmm. How do you think committing to your life in Australia has changed your sense of identity? It's been very reassuring that I'm not the only one. The Adelaide Hills area where we live is surprisingly international and it's surprising how many natural winemakers here or people that do other kind of small businesses related to agriculture that they used to have urban lives. They cooked in Sydney or they had a career in London or in New York or Paris. There's quite a lot, Berlin. And um, so I always kind of take heart to know that I'm not the only one that's had to kind of relearn like my entire existence and so yeah in winter instead of you know like walking to a bar at 6 p.m to have a drink we're out there like gathering kindling to make a fire to keep our house warm and it's it was such an extreme shock for the first two years and I didn't even know if I could do it in some ways and we had all these plans to like we were just going to keep bouncing around even after we had a kid. And then the pandemic really made us obviously stay in place. And that, that really helped because it forced me to concentrate more on what we do have and how I can make it my own. And that's when I started learning how to grow vegetables and flowers and all those things. Yeah. And I have this friend who jokes now, she, she stops by and I'm like, in the in the veggie patch like in my work clothes wearing gloves like with a hat covered in soil and she's like yep you're a country girl now (laughs) (laughs) I'm like I don't know I think I'm definitely still and I always will be like sort of an urban person at heart um but yeah we're hoping as things like open up more we can kind of rekindle that part of ourselves because my husband he always likes to say to me, he's like, I wasn't born on a farm. You know, he used to live in Sydney. People do have that past or that part of themselves and it's still there. But over time, I think you really grow to love like working the land, essentially. I really thought as I was reading your memoir that it was going to end with you guys deciding to like split your time between Paris and the Adelaide Hills. Maybe that's the second memoir. (laughs) Well, to be honest, we sort of did. And looking back, I'm like, that's insane. Like, you don't you don't know before you've had a kid what it will be like. But I don't think you can do that with a kid. Not not really. I mean, the pandemic made it so that we couldn't try anyway. But we sort of did have that idea. And we kind of have now an idea. So we would like to have a very small kind of agriturismo thing in Italy, but not like nothing urban, but maybe like a little tiny cafe and a small kind of flower garden, I don't know, and a couple of bedrooms where people can stay in. And that would be nice because I just feel so far away from all the people that I knew in Europe, the people I knew in New York from my family in the States. I don't particularly like want to move back to places that I used to live, but that, that would be much closer. 
uh, Australia is definitely its own world. <laughs> yeah. My brother lives in Sydney and I'm like, am I ever going to see you again? <laughs> When's that oh God. <laughs> yeah. The thing I love the most about your story is that it's such a inspiring example of following your curiosity and the way things unfold in your favor. If you just go with your gut and follow your intuition. Do you have any advice for somebody who's feeling restless in their life and is feeling the pull of a new chapter, but they don't know how, where to begin pursuing that or figuring out what direction to go next? Oh, I'm going to go so new agey here. Do it. I'm just going to say you need to like, you need to go inward. You need to be doing yoga. You need to be meditating. You need to be going on long walks by yourself like nobody's going to answer these questions for you. And so you're going to have to kind of start jiggling things on the inside if you want your intuition to to guide you in that way, um, because it will. But if you're just kind of, you're, go, you're waking up, you're going to work and then you're going to have drinks with friends and you go home and like you watch Netflix and go to bed, you're not going to get that you're not going to, you're not going to get that little voice kind of from within. So you need to get it from, from somewhere. And I did that. Like, I definitely, I definitely did that. And that's how I switched from being an academic to being a writer, being a journalist. And I think it really opened up a lot of space in me to kind of find this new, it was a long, long transition, but I think if you don't mind kind of risking um, because it you, you just you make yourself vulnerable when you decide you might want to change your life. But if you're open to that, then that's a good place to start. There was another episode of this podcast, also Paris themed, featuring a woman called Jackie Kai Ellis, who is Canadian. And she had a really good job and everything, but was feeling kind of depressed and miserable. And she was talking about how there was just one moment in her day every day where she felt joy and it was going and buying herself like a baked good, like a cupcake or a pastry of some sort. Mm-hmm. And so she just followed that moment of joy and decided to go to Paris and enroll in like a patisserie school. And then from there, she ended up like opening her own bakery and doing these like Paris patisserie tours. And she lived happily ever after. So sometimes it's as simple as that, just feeling what gives you joy and then seeing where it takes you. This is amazing. And, and like her, her parents and her friends might have told her not to. They might have told her that she'd be throwing away her career, her 401k, those kinds of things, all of those things that give you stability. But you only live once and you have to find your happiness. And money, money will probably come from somewhere. So that's amazing. I love that. How do you think your life would be different now if you hadn't been invited on that press trip to France? I guess I would have gone back to writing fiction. I don't know. I think me going into like wine and food writing was really destiny. I think it might've been different if I had not focused on wine. And so at one point I asked a colleague who was further along in her career. I said, I'm feeling like overwhelmed. I'm doing wine articles, I'm doing food articles, and I'm definitely feeling a bit like, you know, have my hands in too many pots. And she thought for two seconds, and she was like, you should be a wine writer, because there's like hardly any female wine writers. And I was like, oh, okay. 
I mean, I think in either field, it still can be sort of dominated by men, but may, maybe more so in wine. And that's it. I just sort of, I stopped writing about food and I focused on wine. I'm sure I would have found my way into it anyway, I think is what I'm saying. I think that was really like, that's where I was going very much. Well, Rachel, you've been wonderful. Thank you so much. I loved your memoir and I love how wholeheartedly you live. Everything you've chosen to do, all the niches you've explored are so fascinating. So thank you for being such a great guest. Yeah, thank you. I think this podcast is such a great way to explore people's passions and different cultures and convince other people to pursue their own dreams. And I'm just very happy to have been a part of it. Yeah, thank you for your comment about the book. It's out there. You had me at Petnat. It's in pretty much every bookstore. Um, you can go into an, any bookseller and ask them to order it if they don't have it on the shelves. And it's always great to hear from people who read it. And um, people send me messages on Instagram. And I read every single one. I love that. Yeah. What's your Instagram handle? Where can people find you on the internet? It's at Rachel. Sig, R-A-C-H-S-I-G. It's just the first half of my first name and the first half of my last name. Before you go, do you have time for a little quick fire round? Okay. What's the one thing every person should experience in their lifetime? I think going on a really long trek in the mountains where you, you pack everything with you and sleep outside just in a sleeping bag and not sleeping in cabins but like bringing everything with you for several days and cooking your own meals because it teaches you how to rely on yourself in a way that you probably didn't know was possible and because your mind goes to places that you didn't even know like existed when you're totally in the woods for a few days I think everyone should do that what's the one thing you never travel without a journal to write in. If you could teleport anywhere just for the day, where would you go and what would you do? Oh, wow. <sighs> Poland, so I could help children that are fleeing Ukraine for a day. Good answer. Uh, best country or region to visit to learn more about wine? Well, I talked so much about France, but just to be fun, I'm going to say... Um, Spain, because Spain makes incredible wine and um, it's just wonderful. It's just as great. People talk a lot about Italian and French wine. And Spain is like amazing and they have so many great varieties that nobody has heard of. There's vineyards within an hour of Barcelona and maybe an hour and a half of Madrid, all accessible by train. So yeah, don't forget about Spain. What's an underrated destination you would recommend? Is Berlin underrated? I don't think people talk enough about Berlin. It's so incredible. Berlin is so amazing and so international. Um, there's a lot happening there, like politically and culturally, incredible art scene. Uh, you can eat incredible food, like from like Syrian and, and Turkish kind of fast food to beautiful, very well-prepared meals that are kind of just like, new modern European with natural wine. And I just, yeah, I, I've had great experiences in Berlin. I love going there. Favorite natural wine bar in Paris and what's your go-to order? A lot of these places have kind of like changed in the past few years. 
So I'm just going to say La Cave à Michel, even though I know, I know that the owners recently moved to Burgundy. La Cave à Michel is a standing room only bar. It's super tiny and you have to get oof mayo, eggs mayo, and it literally hard boiled eggs that you have to crack open yourself and a dish of mayo and just ask them for a, a light red wine to say, I'd love a really good bottle of light red and let them do the rest. What's a podcast, a show, or a book you'd recommend for a long journey? I'm really into this podcast right now called uh, Literary Friction. So for people that like to read novels, they interview amazing writers. And it's a, I think they must do it over Zoom. So one of them, I think, is in London. The other is, I don't know, somewhere in the States. And they have this funny kind of American-British banter going on and they spend the first kind of five minutes just talking about life and sometimes I actually enjoy that as much as I enjoy the like talk about books yeah literary fiction is a really good a very fun podcast and finally where is next on your bucket list so you have the bucket list so we're going to Europe again to see people and in all honesty at some point in my life I think I really decided that I prefer to go back to places and keep keep experiencing them and, and keep feeling close to people there and to the languages there, as opposed to kind of ticking places off the list. But I think if there is a bucket list for us, we had been starting to plan a trip to Korea. And part of that is a bit sort of like wine sales market trip. But we're also just, we were really excited to spend time there and enjoy the food and see how it's paired with natural wine. There's a, definitely a big growing natural wine culture there. And just to like learn, learn the culture and just, yeah, experience the place. Um, so one day we'll get back on track to that. So good. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. It's been really fun. Yeah, thank you. I had a great time. It was a really great conversation. Thanks for having me. And I'll be looking out for your for your wines in Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. We'll be back in two weeks' time with more inspiring travel stories for your ears. In the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line and please be sure to rate, review and follow so we can keep this adventure going. 